0: Turn your empties into sport opportunities. You can give a local child the gift of sport just by donating your empties to the Kids Sport Recycling Program. All you have to do is text or call 403-680-8776 to schedule your first pickup, and we will pick up your empties right from your curb. Get started today and help get local children back to sport. Text or call 403-680-8776
1: now. Not sure what sports are provided in Calgary? Sport Calgary Sport Directory will help you find the sport and organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more.
2: All right, welcome back to the Face First podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Alicia Rissling. My name is Grace
0: Dafoe, and we have another guest for you today. We have Duff Gibson. So, (laughs) Duff, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank
1: you. Oh, my pleasure.
0: Um, Duff is a firefighter, but before, well, along the way as well, you were also the world and Olympic champion skeleton in 2006. Multi sport athlete. I really want to get into this because there's a lot of good stories with that. Um, And you're author of the latest book, Tau Sport. And you also run Dark Horse Athletic, which I have worked for you for the last little bit. So we, then we've nailed this is the second employer I've had on the podcast. So welcome.
1: <laughs> yeah, so watch what you say, Grace. Yeah,
0: this is a common theme. We bring no, in I'm all kidding.
2: of Grace's bosses.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, like, I mean, there's so much to get into. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to it. But I really do want to hear, I guess, a quick snippet of like your multi-sport journey and how that led you into Skeleton.
1: Well, I I guess uh, I was raised like a lot of people in my generation were, which was you were if the sun was shining, you were kicked out of the house, and there were lots of kids in my neighborhood. And so if there were enough kids, we'd play street hockey, and if there weren't, we'd play hide-and-seek or kick the can, and we built skateboard. There was a big skateboard phase I went through, so we built ramps and jumps and stuff, so I think that was, you know, if you want to talk about physical literacy, 90% of that for me was being kicked out of the house and not having an Xbox to, you know, or a phone to distract me and just living in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids. And then uh, I think probably a significant milestone or event in my life was watching the Montreal Olympics when I was really young on TV and thinking, okay, I want to be a part of that. I don't care what sport it is and trying sequentially many different sports until ultimately I found the one that matched my sort of genetic makeup, I guess, uh, perfectly and didn't (laughs) penalize me for my limitations. It sort of matched my strengths and didn't, didn't penalize me for my weaknesses, and that was skeleton. So that was sort of it. And as you know, in Dark Horse, one of my ways of introducing myself to new kids is to say... Who here can name something that I've, a sport that I've never even tried before? And there, there are, there are a few, but, but I've tried a lot. Alicia, Alicia, would you like to? Yeah, Yeah.
2: I I was going to say, I'm going to start introducing myself. I know all the answers, so I will sit quiet (laughs) over here. (laughs) Uh, I'll try and guess one, sure. Um, Let's say, uh, I'm going to go off the grid here, figure skating.
1: That is correct. That <laughs> is one of the...
2: Well, I know a little <laughs> bit about of... your bio, so I might have had a, a cheat in there. So <laughs> um, the thing I wanted to like talk about, so you mentioned how you, you found a, a sport that you matched up perfectly athletically, but you didn't find it until you were significantly older,
1: right? Right, Which, which is you might see that as a negative, but of course I had all the training methods and all the development that I went through for all of the steps along the way. Mm -hmm. So I, and Skeleton wasn't, I would say I matched up very well with bobsledding as well because the skills overlap. Yeah. But uh, Skeleton didn't enter back into the Olympic program until Salt Lake in 2002. And so the timing was perfect. Okay. So it, 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 the the karma of it worked really well, and yeah, I don't know. It's uh, did you because you you were a multi sport athlete also, and you weren't. A, no one was a bobsledder to begin with, right? <laughs> no <to> skeleton.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I was a multi sport uh, throughout. I did track and field and basketball in university, um, and then went into bobsled at the age of 22. I just turned twenty three that for like in November of that season. But you started skeleton. Uh, how old were you when you first started Skeleton?
1: I was 33, I think. 33, yeah.
2: So that's significant. I would say that's, like, pretty significant. That would be, like, me now just starting into a sport and becoming an Olympic champion in in a couple of years from now, which is is a pretty amazing feat in itself. So what were you doing until that point? Like, talk to us a little bit about your journey, um, both, like, through sport and career-wise, and as well as how those two things intertwined that led you to getting into Skeleton.
1: Well, I, career-wise, I worked at What was then Lindsay Park Sports Center, now is Repsol Repsol Sports Center. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I worked in the weight room. I I was employed there as the, I can't remember what my title was, but the exercise specialist, I guess, um, which is where I met my wife, incidentally. But I was doing, from an athletic perspective, I say I competed in five sports each time thinking, this is the one, this is it, Uh, beginning with wrestling in high school. And then in university, I had uh, my uncle went to the 84 Olympics in rowing. And so I sort of followed along in his footsteps. And so when I was in university, I took up rowing. And then after that, I, I did my undergrad at Western, which was a big rowing school, and then came to the UFC right after the uh, the Calgary Olympics. And I had just watched Gaetan Boucher and, and the speed skating there. So I thought, well, I'll switch to speed skating and, and naturally. You know, genetically it'll work because <laughs> I'll have, I could be a sprinter or a long distance and I'll just find naturally what fits with me. Uh, and that worked pretty good for a while and then switched to bobsledding from there. And that was the most significant training ground for skeleton, obviously same tracks, same concepts, uh, but eventually got tired of being, you know, as I said, Pierre Luters was the top dog at the time. And you could be, and I'm not implying that I was, but you could be, the way the system worked, you could be as good, you could be a better driver and a better pusher, but you can't, you can, You need to be, you need to somehow bribe someone to be on your team and afford, he, uh, the sled that he had was was made by a Swiss guy at the t- like customs made by a Swiss guy at the time, which was almost a hundred thousand dollars. Now I know they're all a hundred thousand dollars now, but in ninety three or whatever it was, that's that you know, was that's what a house cost back yeah, then. For and sure. So yeah. at some point I just got tired of, you know, jumping through the hoops and I thought, okay, for Ryan Davenport, who is a Calgarian, Mm -hmm. will make you what everyone in the world is competing on. All the top sliders in the world are competing on. And then I'm not dependent upon anybody else or anyone believing in me. It's just if I get better, it's because of what I did. If I didn't do well, it's because of what I did. So Mm -hmm. that was my impetus for switching over. And then it it worked, it fit. Mm -hmm. And all of the training and all of the you know, bobsleigh and skeleton training are in essence the same thing other than I wasn't taking a ton of calories to try and be the 230 pound version of me. I was trying to not take any protein and be the slightly skinnier, more aerodynamic version of the same guy. So it's, it, it's sort of built perfectly. And I wasn't, you know, I, my last Olympics, I was 39, so I hadn't Quite gone over that peak of body falling apart yet, so it worked <laughs> well
2: that's that's actually impressive though because I think most people will say the body fall apart ten years before that so it's it's pretty impressive that you were managed to stay and and continue to get better um, as you did for that long um, my I guess my next question is uh, What's your, what's your favorite memory from Skeleton? What's your favorite medal that you won? Because you won so many of them. And I'm going to guess that it was the one at the end, but it might not be. So that's why I had to ask.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's, well, I guess, the, I guess the Olympic medal is probably the, the answer to that. And yeah. my wife, Jen, was there, as opposed to the other one that would be in the running, which was the World Championships two years prior in Kunixi, uh which is, you know, because it's a German track, and I don't have to tell you this, but to anyone listening, they would never know that we get almost no spectators except in Germany. And in Germany, there'd be a few thousand people there, uh, and it, it was a four-run combined, and after the first day, there were two people tied for first, two German, two German team members who were tied for first, and I was tied with my team teammate Jeff Payne for third and we were six hundred, six six or 800s behind first so there are four of us who were sort of pulling away a little bit yeah. and then after the third run it had shuffled a little bit so I was still I think I was still tied for third I think a German came I can't remember but it was just oddly oddly close and then for me to Win on the okay. Now I'm tooting my own horn. I just suddenly became. That's
2: what about. this podcast is all about. Here, we need you to do this. <laughs> how, we need to let the people yeah, know. That's what kids yeah. is all yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, so then I broke the track record and passed two Germans to to win that one. And I it was super emotional. It was it wasn't the first win, but it's certainly the first win at a World Championships. And I had a long, you know, uh, the commentator said. Duff Gibson world champion, what does that feel like? And it was just so, you know, like I, you know, I was hit by the emotion of it and I had a chat with Jen after, like it's maybe I should be retiring right now because it doesn't, I want to go out at the best possible moment. And how could it possibly be better than that in that environment with that many spectators, you know, catching German Germans on the last run in Germany. and on their,
2: Yeah, on their home track. I just, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was it was really special. But it's, it's, and this is something I talk about in the Tao of Sport, is that so much of my performance or my success, let's say, is dependent, probably number one on my teammates, but number two on the people I competed against. And there was probably five or six, uh, you know, of the top, guys around the world who really had the perfect competitive attitude, in my opinion, which is I, if you win, I will legitimately be happy for you and be the first person to shake your hand. And before the race, I will wish you to have your best race. And you don't get, I don't think like, it's interesting, the, the skateboarding competition in Tokyo has come up three or four times in the last week about what kind of an environment that is and how that, what I just described, is very much the environment of skateboarding, which is a credit to those who've come before in skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe a lack of a of a structure and, a, and the organization pushing it and all the money involved in this sort of thing to this point. But... Uh, yeah, the, the Gregor Stolle is someone that I referred to who is, uh, until recently, was the best and most successful athlete in the history of my sport on the men's side. And, uh, you know, he would legitimately wish you well and knew had an understanding that your success and his success were completely independent. And if he executed a race and was happy with his race and you were able to do the same – and and beat him. I probably only beat him maybe five times in my entire career. Mm-hmm. Then he was he was legitimately happy for you. And it was it was not a undercut your opponent. It was not a you know mind games. It was none of that. And and so everyone achieved a level much higher than they would have. And I it, it was a wonderful environment to be in.
0: Yeah, that's I've heard a lot of um Obviously, these stories through Dark Horse, Duff tells these stories to to the kids in our program, but every time I listen it, it's just, you know, we're teaching kids about how to, you know, lose gracefully and all this stuff, and giving them real-life examples, I find, actually really does help. Um, moving on from your World Championship, spoiler alert, you didn't retire, even though you're at the top of your <laughs> game. Um, talk to us a bit about Torino, and I know, like, it's interesting, you say you beat Germans on a home track, and I would say... Um, you know, to beat to beat the home country on Olympic track is also quite the feat. So I want to hear a bit about how, how you did that and how you kind of leveled up maybe to achieve that gold.
2: This time not with a couple thousand, with hundreds of thousands and, and millions of people <laughs> watching on TV.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's the home track aspect to it. And it's. I'm interested to know your perspectives also, but the there will always be a home track. Any, anywhere you host, uh, an Olympics, it'll be someone's home track and that's an advantage and you can't really avoid that. In Torino, the Italian competitor in men's skeleton wasn't really a metal threat. And so it kind of took that off. You know, it was in men's luge. It -hmm. was in, they, you know, I don't want to use the word stole because they were a very good team, but the, the bobsleigh, the women's, uh, uh, Bob sleigh. They won the bronze medal, uh, just ahead of
2: hundredth. Ahead guess. of Helen, yeah, yeah. Helen and Heather, yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So that's the reality of that'll be true no matter where you host an Olympics. But it it was sort of the hometown advantage was taken off the table. I would say the the greatest asset or the the best training that I did was hours and hours and hours, I pushed the limits of visualization. I pushed how much, like I would say I found the line between what's enough and what's slightly driving me crazy and making me not want to think about it at all for for a while. And so I tried to do 100 visualizations for every run I took down the track for the week I was there. So that's in addition to what you would do in the off season or, or any other time. And that took about that took about two hours for every run I did in training. I would do two hours of visualization. And it was, you know, it was, it was extremely difficult mentally to stay focused for, for four hours a day. Right. Cause no be two hours on the track and four hours of visualizing. So I'd watch the video again and again and again, you know, there was a, a POV video that someone took down the track and it was, and, and, and I started to think to myself, well, They went late into eleven. Am I going to? Am I teaching myself to go late into eleven because the video I'm watching again and again is going late into eleven? But it's for skeleton and luge more than bobsleigh. But to for bobsleigh to a certain extent also, maybe less than they give a credit for. Your body is your shock absorber. So the more relaxed you are, that's why. I mean, I was a decent starter, but not. Great in terms of the world rank, you know, the Mm -hmm. second, I did a second once, but I was typically a fifth or sixth fastest Mm -hmm. starter, I would say. So I, therefore, I should have no business winning a medal in Calgary, which is a less difficult track. They call Calgary more of a track meet, right? It's more about the start. But I was always on the podium in Calgary because I had done that track 2,000 times, and therefore I was a better shock absorber Mm -hmm. because going late into a corner... Well, I've gone late into certain corners like hundreds of times. So I don't panic. I don't uh, tighten up. And so the goal was to uh, get myself to a mental state where in Torino... In my head, at least, I had done that track thousands and thousands of times, so I would be a better shock absorber going down the track. And uh, I, I think I was able—I uh, was able to do that. And part of the, again, that comes back to team. It's how much pressure, how much muscular tension do you have going into the second run? How much, you know, how much are you able to relax? It's not just the visualization, although that's how you distract yourself and get yourself in the right state. But I had teammates also who were very lighthearted and would joke around and allow me to stay in that state as well. But the visualization was the main thing by a lot, I would say.
0: Yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring this up is because it's funny because my first race in Whistler ever, it was yourself and Rob Derman were coaching us. It was NAC ICC uh, in like 2015 or something. And I think you had asked me, well, Grace, like how many times are you visualizing? And I was like, yeah, like once or twice. And you like, I'm pretty sure we're like, okay, like, You need to be doing more, and then you told the story of how many times you visualized leading into Torino, and I was like, oh, okay, wow, Like this is how... And again, like this is my first year of competing, so you did educate me a little bit more on the importance of that mental prep, and uh, I think it's a great story and shows... I mean, obviously, technology helps us a lot more now. I mean, you can see a little bit better Alicia going down the track, but the GoPros, the way the GoPros have gotten now, like the 360 ones, it's like you can see backwards when they're exiting the corner and like how it's it's insane so kudos to you because it would have been way harder without these uh fancy gopros we have these days yeah for sure well,
1: well yeah but it's what pops in my head is that what you were describing you were on the path that every skeleton probably luge maybe bobsled athlete takes which is you go down the track you bunch and in, smash into a bunch of walls and you go oh i'm three seconds behind the fastest person and then you practice and practice and practice and you don't hit a wall and you're still two seconds behind the fastest person and you, and you go, how could I possibly, where are the two seconds coming from, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, and the GoPro, as you say, doesn't teach you to relax on the sled. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's better at doing that aspect. It's a step forward, but it doesn't make you a better Slider. slider in the sense of just allowing your body to to get faster going down a track.
2: No. And just for our listeners out there. So when we talk about visualizations, when we go in, in our sliding sports in particular, but this is true to every sport is when, when we practice, we get to go through each corner for some corners, one second, some corners, three seconds. Like that. And if you, if you go back to that ancient rule, I can't remember who said it, but it takes 10,000 hours to perfect your sport. Um, or become a, a master of anything. How are you supposed to become a master if you're spending one second in a corner? And you can't... So the way we get closer to that faster is by going through in our brains as many times as we can. And um, just speaking to that, like I, I remember as a more development athlete, I would do hundreds of visualizations kind of on the same as yours before I go to that corner. And then actually through working with a sports psych now where I am in my career um, I'll do way less. And it's because the more I go through it, the more I'll tense up and the more I'll like start to worry about things. So I've actually had to go the other way, which actually proved to be very beneficial for me. Um, but now heading next year into a track that I've never been to before. In fact, no one's been to before except for a Chinese team that's going to have a huge advantage in February. Um, Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I will be doing thousands of visualizations because I think we're only going to get uh, maybe 30 runs before we, we have to compete in an Olympic event there. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's a, it's just an important tool, and, and it's something that I wish I would have utilized more as a basketball player for things such as free throws. Um, if I, I hated being in the gym for two hours just shooting free throws, but if I would have known that I could have gone home and spent 15 minutes, you know, kind of just – working on relaxing my body and that meditative state and going through that free throw, I think it actually would have made me a much better shooter and I probably would have more success in my career. So um, it's definitely something that I, I pass on to the younger generation because it's just such a, an important tool. Um, so I, I guess this is a good segue into Tao. And why is your book called The Tao of Sport? And maybe just talk a little bit about your why why you wrote this book to start.
1: Well, honestly, I, part of my motivation, it's something that I have been sort of chipping away at for years and years. Mm -hmm. And the silver lining for me for COVID-19 was I had lots of spare time to dedicate to this, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's also a, you know, I, I work with dark horse, which is kids and it's a, a, the tau means the way or a a way of being, the path, path or way of being in its literal translation, translation, it's a Chinese word. Mm-hmm. Now, there is also the correct pronunciation is if is is as if it was spelt with a D. So I pronounce yeah. it Tao because I think I want people to be able to look up the book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's part of it. But it's it's generally referred to as the Tao of sport or the Tao or Taoism. But it's correctly pronounced as if that was a D. So I'll throw that out there. I'd Get rather have people correct me or laugh that I've mispronounced it, but can look up the book. So I've sort Perfect. of made that conscious decision. <laughs> but it's it's philosophy, and I I figured I'd write all this stuff down because I'm I'm as I say I'm working with dark, I'm working with kids now, and no longer with the high performance athletes segment at all, Mm -hmm. and uh, so I just wanted to summarize, you know, it seemed a shame to me that I had accumulated all this knowledge and had gone through with the Clara Hughes and the Becky Scotts and the, you know, all these, you know, uh, amazing athletes that Canada has produced for no reason other than I was an amateur athlete in Calgary at a specific time, and having these discussions with them, and there's such wisdom to share, and it all it all comes back to development or or if you're talking about dealing with pressure at an Olympic games well I think my biggest asset asset there was my upbringing and so how do you you know looking at the two of you as elite competitive athletes that's you know your upbringing is the upbringing right Mm -hmm. so it's it's I'm talking about it, hopefully. Tao, meaning path or way of being, is sort of just a philosophy. It's, a, it's, it's also marketing. I hope it's, it's a, a title that people grab onto and say, oh, that's interesting. I want to know more about it. So that's, I'm being honest about, about that regard. But it's, it's a philosophy. It's a way of thinking. And I hope it describes what it is when you just see the title mm-hmm. and that there's less... You have books, lots of books, about sports psychology. But this is slightly different in the sense that it's a bigger picture. It's about the philosophy. It's about how you look at winning. You know, my bias, which I talk about, this is how I open the book, is Matt Brown was a sports psychologist and uh, sat down beside me before, you know, the World Cup before the Salt Lake Olympics and, and said, you know, between training runs in Kunigsee, Germany, at a World Cup and said, is there anything I can do to help? And I said, yeah, don't sit down beside me between training runs at a World Cup and ask me if you can help. (laughs) Like I had this horrible attitude that sports psychology was for weak-minded people who couldn't handle the pressure. And I have done a complete 180 turn about that. Uh, And I just wanted to share what I had learned over the years. That's the basis for the book.
0: I mean, I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories standing, standing next to a at Dark Horse, and I, I can guarantee, I know I'm looking forward to reading it, but I think it'll be really beneficial. Um, I mean, and it's like essentially your lessons, like you said, written down, and, and there's some good ones in there. And you say you haven't had a ton of touch points with high-performance athletes, but you've employed a few over the last few years, and, and I'd yeah. say you've passed some on to us, so um, that has been, you're not completely off of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to kind of go down that, that rabbit hole though. So we're jumping back into your story. You retire after Torino, correct? Yep. Yeah. And you actually ended up taking a coaching role. Was, was that something that you had always kind of envisioned yourself doing after leaving skeleton or did it just happen? And you're like, cause you were still firefighting at the time, but then this coaching, coaching job came up with Canada. So I guess I want to know like what pulled you to kind of be involved in that, in that aspect of sport.
1: Well, I, that's, I mean, that's 2006 and I, that's going back a few years now. So I don't honestly remember well enough to give you a definitive answer, but I, (laughs) I can tell you that I had always had an interest in it and that I had planned to go into coaching, you know, it wasn't, okay, I'm done now. What do I do? It's, I had always planned to transition into that role and had, had had discussions about that before I had retired. So And it was interesting because I had athletes that had never done the sport before and I had athletes, eventually, I coached Melissa Hollingsworth and uh, Michelle Kelly, whom were my teammates. And so, obviously, those are two, you know, I'm not going to tell Melissa Hollingsworth how to slide or any, you know, you know what I mean? Like, she has more experience than me. So, uh, those are all very different relationships. And so, it was, but I have to say the, coaching people who were brand brand new was the easiest because they you know I just won the Olympics and you're doing it for the first time I got no back talk put it that way (laughs) you know that's it's it was it was the easiest but I but I also remember teaching people who never had done it before. It, it was really a shock at the beginning because the first thing we ever did was go in the ice house and the and I remember on the first day someone put the sled down backwards so the head was pointing uphill <laughs> and it was like oh this might be more more of a a, a, challenge, a challenge that I yeah. initially thought but but yeah, I don't know that's the long version of a short answer which is I had planned to do it ahead of time but I'm not sure what my motivation was to <laughs> but I guess I'm writing this book to pass on it seems. I feel like part of my success was being absolutely obsessed with one thing, which was skeleton and all the different components of skeleton. And so the number of hours I have spent thinking about specific tracks and how to modify a sled to better fit me, to better suit my style, to modify a runner so that I, as a you know, 95-kilogram slider... Would not dig into the ice the way a weight, typical weight limit or a uh, woman competitor slider would dig into the same ice. You know, all of those all of those things. I felt like I had. You know, I still feel like with regard to how to steer a specific corner, it it occurred to me that I should make a YouTube video or something to to just say, look, this is how I thought of it, and. Because you know you probably Grace and maybe to you as well Alicia were brought up or taught initially. There's no such thing as a perfect run, and there's yeah. uh, this is what you're shooting for. You're shooting for four inches off the right corner going into this going into this corner, and there are places where that's perfect, but you'd be nuts to try and steer in the straightaway to get exactly four inches. So I tried to coach, and I I never worked with you. Uh, to just here and there, maybe that one, that your first race might have been the only time I ever worked with you, Grace, but yeah. I i t- tried to teach in a different way, which is very much like Dennis Marino, actually. Uh, a lot of my stuff is what he said to me as a bobsledder 150 years ago, but uh, if you are lined up like this coming out of corner three in Calgary, to, to use a reference that no one will get other than the two of you... <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: If you're one foot off the right wall, <clears throat> coming off of corner three in Calgary, that's as good as it gets. Don't do anything and just allow yourself to accelerate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And very few people will, will will speak of it in that in those terms. So I feel like I got some great coaching and have learned the hard way. And there's so much knowledge that if now that I'm away from skeleton, <clears throat> now that I'm away from skeleton, it's just, where does that knowledge go? Well, it's it's done. And other people and other coaches are learning from, from scratch. And it seems like such a waste. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, there, there's just so many different philosophies out there, which, um, really looking forward to reading your book because it just seems like there, you, so many references you've made. I'm like, we're we're cut from the same cloth actually in terms of mindset and I, I like to learn the hard way apparently too. So um We well, have no choice. Yeah. You have no choice. Um and, and, and just back one forward a question that just popped to my head and sorry this is a little bit backtracking here, but why was it that you and you spoke to it a little bit after after your Knigsi World Championships win, win and you're like, you know, this is as good as it gets. Like, I want to go out because I want to go out on top. Is that why you chose to walk away from the sport um, as the Olympic champion? You chose to retire. And, like, was that choice... Or, did you know you were always going to retire um, immediately following the Olympics? Or was it yeah. a, a decision that was made because you won? Or, yeah, what what about that?
1: Yeah, if I if I didn't win, then I would in my mind i was going to stick around for one summer because the next world cup would be in calgary the following season okay and so i thought oh, i'll stick around so my family and friends can watch me race one more time and then i could end on my home track that's yeah. the only that's as far along as i thought about it mm-hmm. and I mean, Grace, you said, oh, still improving at age 39. Well, my body was giving me signs that it was not, it was hanging in, not improving <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, I t- even the Olympic year, I had pulled something, or I had a hip flexor problem the Olympic year. And the previous two world championships, I had been just worn out and I wonder if being injured at the beginning of the season forced my uh, – a delay in my peaking. Mm. And so it may have actually worked out better that way so that I was – I was de- well, it's kind of a funny story. And I don't the, – the Tao of sport is not my story. It's my – it's some of – it's not my, oh, then I went to the Olympics, then I want to go. It has nothing right. to do with my story in that regard. But uh, um, I – two weeks – Three weeks before, the second last World Cup before the Torino Olympics, I thought I broke a rib uh, hitting the wall out of horseshoe in, in St. Moritz. Oh, yeah, that's and a I, good one. <laughs> and I couldn't uh, lie on a sled, and I got an x-ray, and there was no broken bone, so that was a relief. But I went home anyway because I had a, I don't know if you've ever had a dislocated rib, but I had a rib that I could push at my sternum and it popped oh. it like moved like a quarter of an inch in my armpit oh my and goodness and I push it in my armpit and it popped into place at my sternum and 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 so I was sacrificing you know and I thought that <laughs> okay it's not I believe you that there's no broken bone but that's not good we can all agree that that's not <laughs> that's good that's not good
2: it's <laughs> yeah, probably not okay yeah
1: but but you know I was struggling to be on the World Cup circuit and get athletically to a peak at a certain moment, and that afforded me to go home and sleep in my own bed and, and uh, train at Lindsay Park and, and do the best possible training so that I was not quite but almost at my best possible state physically by the time the Olympics rolled around. Now, it bumped me from the first seed to the second seed, but uh, that, was, that was kind of one of the exciting moments the night before the race, when Teresa Haladi, who was our team leader, came from the team captains meeting and said, Duff, what race bib number would you like me to pull out of my bag I have for you right here? And I said, 11, and she pulled out an 11. So, and then mm-hmm. one step further, the two athletes that I was competing against that I had the best training and thought were the best. Uh, the best metal threats, I guess they drew nine and 10. So the fact that I was in the second seed and the ice might deteriorate now that was no longer a concern. So that was kind of one of the exciting things that happened in, in Torino.
2: Yeah. Just, just to clarify to people that, so you want to go as early as possible uh, when you go down in in any of the sliding sports, except on St. Moritz Um, with that being the natural track, because the ice might, Deteriorate, but if your biggest metal threats are right next to you in the order, it actually kind of cancels anything out, and it doesn't really give you that much more of an advantage. So, yeah, you got lucky on that one for sure. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I'd say there's been a few uh, instances in the last... Gosh, 10 years now where ice magically deteriorates very quickly for some people. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's, it's
2: unfortunately becoming more and more of a problem in a well, sport, how it can magically fall apart with one slider in, in the middle. <laughs> well, that's,
1: th- Frick, that's, uh, sorry to swear on your podcast yeah, no, there, but uh, that's, that was luge. in. That's why I was so proud of our luge team in Pyeongchang, because they were literally screwed out of a medal, in, uh, Sochi. in Sochi, yep. and that's that's the opposite of what the Tao of Sport is all about. There's mm-hmm. no gossip. There's no, you know, because our women's skeleton team were both screwed out of a medal in Sochi as well, and mm-hmm. most people don't know that. By mm-hmm. turning, you know, the ice was minus eight. Every corner we measured it. Every training day we measured it, and then Park for May or to the layman as As soon as they closed the area off to the equipment and you can't adjust it anymore, the ice temperature went from minus eight to minus minus four immediately, and therefore their equipment was no longer competitive and we didn't mention it, and we hoped for the best, but it was like that's just blatant cheating and then and then a lot of those athletes were subsequently disqualified and mentioned in the Icarus. Uh, documentary and so on. Yeah. But the, the, and so that was my last experience with the Olympics was coaching at an Olympics where it was sort of taking me to the own hands. So that's not what the Tao of sport is about at mm-hmm. all. No gossip, no negative. It's all how that kind of thing would defeat the purpose because ultimately we're competing against ourselves. Right.
0: Did that experience kind of taint like your views on the Olympic movement after obviously having some more, some better men- memories in your earlier Olympic experiences?
1: Yeah, it, it did. It did for a while, for sure. And every scandal, and I don't know if you know who Stu McMillan is, Andre DeGrasse's former coach. He used to be, he was a Calgary guy for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he said during Tokyo, just a couple of days ago, he, he said something along the lines of, with all the crooks and Crackpots associated with the IOC and you know some of these huge governing bodies that you know there's always a bribery scandal or some such nonsense like that. It's there, then you have the athletes, then you have athletic performance that just uh, brings you to tears or shocks you or um, you know I think of the the I think of the women's rowing eights and i think of well the pair they were the same they were the same thing um but uh what, what was the other one uh where the 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 canoeer the women canoeers. right and for yep. the, the history of the olympics canoeing has been event but not for women it's it's just bizarre to me and you have these canadian women who who um you know the the one woman was an eight time world champion and just was sticking around on the chance that it might be included in the Olympic program. that was super special to me, and just mm-hmm. to, to see their emotion and not be able to even talk about it or answer the the question without tearing up like that's yeah that's what brings you sucks you right back into the Olympics for me
0: yeah, I'd say another good one I'd add to the list is the high jumpers that um, yes. they're forced they're saying like, "Oh, jump off," and then he goes well, can't we just share the gold? And the guy's kind of like, I guess like, why not? And that, that to me yeah. is exactly what you're talking about. It, it, something that, you know, they would think that athletes want to push it and go for that jump off, but they're like, well, either one of us gets gold and the other gets silver, or we can just share the gold. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. thats yeah. And that seems so obvious, so obvious. Why can't we both succeed? And it's, my comment at the time was I'm surprised there wasn't a rule that made them try and break the tie Mm -hmm. because that's just, I mean, I understand there's competition. It's that's whenever you have a race, whenever you have a competition, that's the point of it to see who the number one person is or the one, two, three, but there's no, you know, they, they didn't, The guy, the official, just said okay because if the athletes wanted to, they could have just both missed three times on purpose and said, okay, well now you have no choice. You gotta so why (laughs) go through the, you know, the rigmarole of it all? And I, I think we'll still be looking on back on that 25 years from now. That's my opinion.
2: I think you're right. And and I think that's comes out of every Olympics. Every Olympics there seems to be one story or or more than one. Like in like we were talking about before first ever Olympics showing skateboarding and just watching those athletes cheer for each other and like run into the the bowl <laughs> yeah. and pick each other up and put them up on their shoulders and just it was, it was just so special to see that and and that that culture and I think a lot of other sports yeah. could learn from from those cultures and 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 it's interesting that it's the young guys that are sending the name right it was a lot of a lot of those guys in skateboarding and the women were thir- women there were girls they were 13 and 15 yeah. years old and <laughs> uh, the the men i think were i think there was an 18 and a 20 year old and a and a 15 year old so it's like we're going to be seeing these guys for multiple Olympic cycles and and really looking forward to seeing what what the future of that sport does and and hopefully the yeah. lessons that we learn from that culture can get spread and and shared because I, I think that really is what we have to come back to what the basis of the Olympic movement is all about. Yeah. Another another really good one was um the sport climbing which
0: also made its debut and the bouldering they set a course that I was watching and of course I've never watched it before. They set a course um and they have like a certain time period before they start to figure out the route. They've never seen it. And all of, the, all of them, like there's five of them standing around, all looking, planning out together the best route of attack. And I thought that was also really awesome because it was like, same thing, you know, they're, they're helping their competitors. And they're saying like, I think you should go for this handhold and this foothold in order to see who can then execute it the best. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I think what a great addition, skateboarding, surfing, sport climbing to the olympic movement
1: yeah. that's cool i didn't that's the one i saw some speed climbing but not the bouldering and mm. that's that's really interesting Very to interesting. me I and it, and what jumps out at that to me is the collaborations i had with athletes who weren't canadian
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know and trying to figure out corners and so on and then then we'd share that information i mean amongst ourselves Mm -hmm. but the fact that you know there was a point in my career early on when I don't know if Grace you might know the name Maya Peterson and she was a multiple world champion and I don't remember what track we were at, but I was, you know, we're all sitting in the change room together. And she just said, I cannot figure out, can you figure out seven or whatever it was? And we started talking about it. And then I realized I was getting the evil eye from one of my teammates because I was helping the competition Hmm. and it spurred a really good, you know, it wasn't just me saying, oh, sorry, I didn't know that you would see it that way. Our team really got into a good Discussion back and forth, and a few other people jumped in and said, "Well, I'm talking about so and so from another country about this." So, it 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 sort of came out that we're all we're all doing it, and a a good effective race strategy is not. I hope the other team doesn't know how to do corner seven, Mm -hmm. and so let's just let that go. There's to me that's a philosophy. I. I can let that go and I can just be the best version of myself and I can help you to be the best version of yourself and may the best competitor win. That's that's such a... Uh, my experience is that's such a beautiful philosophy because it doesn't impede anybody. And you get to a truer, you get to a level that you wouldn't otherwise get to.
0: And I mean, at the end of the day, you have to execute it. I, we could have the Olympic champion notes or, you know, the giant... Chi- China track notes and it doesn't mean anything until you can actually do the thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and execute yeah, it. But absolutely. it's funny. You say my, my Pedersen, she came back uh, gosh, right before 2018. And she actually helped me figure out Koenigsegg Kreisel because I had crashed about half my runs that week. And oh. she came up to me and she's like, you know, she, and she hugged me. And then she's like, cause I was obviously crying. You mm-hmm. know, you've crashed three out of six of your training runs and you're going into race days and you're like, Ooh. what do I do? Yeah. Um, and that is, like, kind of my, one of my first experiences with, like, an international competitor, um, yeah, coming out, like, helping me. And, and, I mean, I managed to not crash in both my races, so clearly it worked. Um, but <laughs> uh, I think at the end of the day, like you said, everyone's doing it. It just happened that you were doing it in front of others in the change room versus everyone's doing it now on their phones or on, you know, chatting <laughs> yeah. on text or on WhatsApp between, between race days.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Awesome. But it's it, it does remind me of we through a couple of years of my coaching, our women's skeleton team always good, always you know, and this particular year I think all three of the World Cup competitors were ranked in the top six and they could not have given a second thought to what other country was doing what.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because they all had first hand experience that mm-hmm. if you execute, you do well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it doesn't really matter you know where there's all this you know i think because the germans are the top nation and a lot of the german teams came from luge where you can wax runners and then in skeleton you can't it's against the rules bobsleigh it's against the rules you because the germans are so good and and they've had some famous famous elite performers who weren't Fantastic athletically, and still work competitive at the bottom of the track. So people speculate, "Oh, are they? Oh, are they cheating?" Well, all that speculation is a waste of time. And as a as a coach, I've you know spent a lot of time convincing people to please don't worry about what someone else is doing. And B, I've never seen any exam, No one's ever gotten caught, so it may or may not have happened. I have no idea. But the 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 point is that. The women—it was interesting because we had the men who all ranked. I think at one point they were 11, 12, 13, which is good, but just not the level of the women. And the women—the the the men—I I I had to spend a significant amount of time trying to convince them to only focus on what could make them faster. And if the women ever gave a second thought to what the Germans were doing, I was unaware of it because they and I would say that was a a huge stepping point in my career when I realized that my result was based entirely on my execution and I could just let everything else go. Exactly what you were just saying with with Maya. Maya mm-hmm. would not care if you had your best race because she knows her success was based on her execution. Yeah.
2: yeah. Great lessons that uh, all our listeners should go check out. So, <laughs> um, the book Tao of Sport comes out September fourteenth, and where can people get it? Uh,
1: it's all through Amazon at this moment, so you mm-hmm. can pre-order the ebook or on Kindle uh, now. Okay. Uh, through I- I've sort of set up a, a page of the Dark Horse website is now called thetowofsport.com or thetowofsport.com. And it has all the links there. But you can get that through Amazon. The hard cu- the uh the, the paperback isn't available until September 14, but you can pre-order the uh yeah, just go through the website. You can pre-order the anything electronic now. I'm going to have an audiobook version available also. That's that's how I read most of read in quotation marks. <laughs> Most of my books now is driving in my car and listening to them.
2: That's what I do too. Uh, and I,
1: I'll have something like that available, hopefully, by September fourteenth. But awesome. We'll see. Okay, yeah. thanks.
0: No, thank you. Um, and yeah, you can find that on the Dark Horse website. Correct. You yeah. said that. Yeah. 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 Or the
1: Talosport
2: dot. Co. Or Tao of Sport. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you, Duff, for joining us today. This has been awesome. Uh, Really good conversation, really uh, shared some wonderful insight, and and we're so thankful that you joined us today. Yeah. Well, I
1: appreciate... Oh, sorry, Grace. No, go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say I appreciate it, and I appreciate... I hope it wasn't too technical, because I know I'm talking to two sliding athletes and... Hopefully
2: well, hopefully our listeners too. enjoyed it because I know we loved it. We got Kelly in the background here saying that she really enjoyed it and she doesn't do any of the sliding sports. So we have one non-biased <laughs> person giving us a thumbs up. So all good right, start. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: no, and I, I, we could talk sliding forever, but really appreciate you sharing all that and looking forward to reading the book.
2: All right. Thanks. All thank you. right.
1: I appreciate that.
2: Okay, we'll talk to you soon. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Face First podcast.